Now let's turn back once again back to Revelation chapter 2 and let me draw your attention to verse number 5. We'll be dealing with verses 5 through 7 this evening, but I want to just draw our attention back to verse 5. Remember therefore from whence thou art fallen and repent and do the first works or else. I will come unto thee quickly and will remove thy candlestick out of his place, except thou repent. Of course, we're looking at the church of Ephesus, the first of the letters to the seven churches. And we spent an extensive amount of time last Wednesday evening looking at the introductory remarks to this church. Um, the reminders of the seven stars and the seven golden candlesticks, how that the Lord Jesus himself walks among his churches, uh, which is indeed a comforting thought to know uh, that the Lord is amongst and is in the midst. And we began with really what was a commendation. Uh, the church at Ephesus was uh, being commended for their works, being commended for their labor. Uh, they were being commended for patience how that they were not even allowing that which was evil to remain, that they were very diligent in removing uh, that which was evil by trying even those who came posing as apostles, posing as disciples. They said, you have, you have not tolerated that. You have tried them. You have tested them. And you found them to be liars. And uh, everything seems to be going well. This sounds like a church we would all want to be a part of. There's, uh, there's this... Uh, certainly zealousness about it. There's diligence. Uh, even being uh, patient for the Lord's name's sake. You've labored. You've not fainted. Of course, you know the church was under great persecution even at, the, at this time. And he says, you've not fainted. And it sounds like a wonderful church report. But then we saw that word, Nevertheless. And we are drawn to the attention that Christ Himself gives a charge to the church. And it is a rebuke. There is no question about it. This is a rebuke and there is reproof that is in this. Uh, we can try to look at this many different ways, but it is a rebuke. It is a reproof, a reproof of something that is lacking. Uh, Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee, because thou hast left thy first love. Uh, nevertheless is really the pivoting word. It is the word in which now we see what he's getting ready to charge them with, if you will. Uh, those that had so much good in them, so many good reports, so many things that could be, could be commended. And he said, yet there's something. There's, there's something that's wrong. There's something that's amiss. And remember, the Lord would not call anything amiss unless it was. He never is wrong in his judgment or his assessment. Unlike you and I, who can judge a matter wrongly, and we sadly do that quite often. Uh, we take a first glance at something and we make an assessment and we say something's wrong and uh, we know what it is only to find out later we judge too quickly. Uh, Jesus is never wrong in his judgment. He's never wrong in his assessment. So there's nowhere that we can say, oh, maybe he got it wrong. It reminds me of the passages in the Old Testament book of Malachi when the Lord is bringing an accusation through the prophet Malachi and uh, he says that uh, you have robbed me in tithes and offerings and uh, one of the things they say is how have we done that? We haven't been guilty of this. Almost as if God is judging wrongly. You're judging amiss. Uh, well, he's not wrong here. 
Uh, he certainly uh, has an accusation against them. And he, of course, is an impartial judge. Now, notice he did observe. We, saw, we looked at this last week. He did observe that which was good. Um, and again, uh, he's very quick to mention that. John says uh, through the writing, he says he's, he's mentioned these good things. Uh, but the Lord, as much as our, our modern church only wants to focus on the good in which God sees, and uh, the modern church has gotten the idea that all he wants is just your best effort. If you're sincere, if you do it in quote-unquote good faith, he'll be pleased with you. Don't worry about what's amiss as long as you're doing enough good. And that's not what we're learning from this passage at all. Uh, we're certainly learning that we could do many good things, and yet he says all of these good things, but here is this Here's this thing that is wrong. I have somewhat against thee. The sin that Christ, as we saw last week, is charging the church with was their decline in their holy love and zeal. Uh, not an emotional love for Christ, but a holy love, a zealous love. Now, they were zealous to do good works, and they were zealous to do those things, but he says you have declined in your love. You have left your first love. Now, he's not telling them that you have forsaken him, but your degree, your fervency has declined. Uh, you are not where you once were. Uh, we are all uh, different than what we once were. Uh, not only in the spiritual realm, we, we were in the spiritual realm, we were all uh, sinners, of course, without hope, without salvation, without conversion, and then we were changed by the Spirit, we were converted, regenerated, we, we've added to the family of God. There certainly was a change there, but we're also, we change, uh, we change yearly, uh, we change monthly, we change daily. We're not the people we were uh, 15 years ago. We're different. And in those changes, some things decline. And of course, in this realm he's talking about here is there has been a decline in their love. Uh, I made mention of this last week. I believe that the, uh, our first affections, our first love when we first realize that Christ has saved us, uh, I'd say we're more than just uh, lukewarm, certainly, uh, we, are, we are highly desirous of God's glory. We're highly desirous of God's word going forth. We, uh, we think on the Lord. We pray to the Lord. We're, we're continually meditating upon his great truths. Um, even God at times saw Israel. Uh, even Israel, who later would uh, reject the Messiah. God saw moments in Israel's life where they followed him. When he said to go, they followed him. And there was love there. Uh, that same book of Malachi was telling you about as I was reading that and, and considering that today, uh, he begins to use terms with Israel, you've dealt treacherously with me. Uh, and he's using similar terms uh, in Malachi. He, 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 he says, you have, uh, you've turned away. Now again, John did not have in mind here that these, this church had forsaken the Lord, but their degree of love uh, was different. Um, how, do we, how do we keep our first love? Uh, this is not a 12-step program. Um, there, is no, there is no, if you do these 12 things, you will have this zeal for God. There's, I'm not going to give you 12 points in a poem on how to, how to rekindle your love for God. That's not where it's going to be. Uh, but we do uh, have to take great care and diligence 
uh, to our affections for the Lord. We, we have to be diligent about not letting those uh, times slip where we, we, we begin to take our mind off the things of God, take our mind off of our love for Christ. Uh, you know, often we, we, we challenge each other and it's, we're challenged from the pulpits all over this country and all over this world how much Christ loves us and how the love of Christ, he set his love upon us for the foundation of the world. But how often do we hear messages that say, but how have you set your love upon Christ? How is your love towards Christ? Now, it's, it's, it's a true blessing to know that Christ loves me. And it's, it's an unbelievable mystery that he set his love upon his elect before the foundation of the world. But how often am I challenged spiritually to consider my own love to Christ? Now, I know he didn't love me because I loved him first. The Bible tells me that. But what should my response be? My response should be love. Diligence must be taken. Exercising constantly rehearsing what Christ has done for us. That's why we can never hear the gospel too many times. That's why we can never be reminded enough. So the charge that he gave was a rebuke. A rebuke does include in it a level of grief and displeasure. But remember, this is not sinful displeasure. Um, I can be displeased with you, you can be displeased with me, and often it will still be, it'll still be corrupt because there'll be sin in it. I'll be displeased in you because you didn't meet my expectation. My displeasure can be faulty, but if the Lord says, I'm displeased, I have something against you, we can never say, well, Lord, your displeasure is sinful because it can't be. So whatever he has said, it certainly is there. There is this emphasis throughout these seven letters where this theme continues. And even as we get to the church at Laodicea, of course, he talks about the worst position to be in is in a position of lukewarm where you're never neither hot nor cold. You're just lukewarm. And we'll deal with that letter as we get to it. So this is not acceptable. He doesn't say you're doing your best. Stay the course. Things will get better. No, he uses very strong language. Now, we don't think about this word being strong before we ever get to the word that's the strongest of the verse. The word is remember. Now, if I say the word repent, we all agree that's a strong admonition. That's a strong rebuke. That's, that's a reproof. But do you realize that the word remember can be a rebuke and a reproof? Remember. Remember what? From whence thou art fallen. Remember here has the, 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 the tone, the meaning of compare where you are now to where you once were. So the counsel that Christ gives to this church as a result of the charge is remember, therefore, whence thou hast fallen, and then here's the strong, strongest of the words, and repent. So if he gives us a command to repent, then that means leaving your first love is what? It's sin. So how would we treat any other sin? If we were engaged in a sin of immorality of some sort in our life, and I trust that's not the case 
at this very moment. But if we were, and the call, the command is to repent, why are we called to repent? Because it is an abomination to God. It is a violation. It is to miss the mark. It's, it's transgression. So he would not use the word repent here if this was not a sin. So repent is the word that is used here. Remember and repent. So the reproof that he's giving to this church is to remember that those that have lost, have lost their first love must remember from where they have fallen. Compare where you once were to where you are now. What does that mean? Remembrance also includes a recollection. We recall certain things. Uh, many times when people or sin has invaded their life, uh, we realize and we begin to understand that there is a lack of peace in our life that was not there. Uh, we remember times in our life when we were very much, we felt the peace of God. We felt our peace with God. And there was a time when we felt spiritually strong. And, and even our purity seemed to be at the very forefront of our mind. We're, we're thinking about that which is pure. We're thinking about our holiness. We're thinking about that. Well, when sin gets in, our peace is disrupted. See, sin will disrupt your peace. There are people who are in, in, in uh, states right now where they are not peaceful, and it's because there is unrepented sin that is causing that break in peace. Sin doesn't just affect peace. It affects us in every way. It affects even the strength that we have. It, it affects uh, even finding our satisfaction in Christ alone. When you leave your first love, again, they were zealous about some things. They were zealous about their works, but they, they had lost some of that satisfaction that they had in him. Imagine and think about that first. And again, I'm not trying to play on our emotions tonight. I think, I think most of you know me well enough that I wouldn't do that. But think about that first morning after the day that you knew Christ saved you. Think about the level of love that you felt towards your Savior for what He had done. Think about the humility that comes over you about how could He love a sinner like me? How could He love such a depraved wretch, a worm such as I? It's one of the fascinating things about John Newton. He would use that term, a worm. I mean, you can read about John Newton's life and you can realize that John Newton was not a very nice man and was involved in a lot of things that are just appalling. But when Christ saved him, he knew what he'd been saved from. Did John Newton live a perfect life after his conversion? No, none of us do. But the idea here is, is that we have to recall how much more and how much better it was when we were zealous and had this fervent love for Christ. You realize that when your love for the Lord cools, even your ability to deal with and handle afflictions lessens. So when you are not, you're left that first love, your ability to handle afflictions lessens. Suddenly now they do feel more overwhelming than they once did. Not that the affliction is not bad. Afflictions are, can be very challenging, but understand that how much more could we enjoy God's 
favor and understand God's providence going through those afflictions if our love for Christ is what it's supposed to be. Before we leave our first love, most of our desires and most of our hopes are heavenward, not earthly. It it is getting more and more difficult to keep your minds on heavenly things. Because there are so many things now that are drawing our attention, and they're drawing our attention not just for a liking of them, they're drawing our attention so that we might love them. That's why in 1 John it says, love not the world. It, It is possible for that love to be displaced. And, and to be busy about the things of God, to do the things of God, to be zealous about turning away evil, to do all these things, and yet not have fervent love for the Lord. It's what we often refer to as religious busyness. We could be doing a lot of busy work, but yet our love has cooled. Our minds and our love and our affections are set on the things of the world more than they are set on the things of God. The lust of the eyes begins to be a, a more difficult uh, thing to deal with. So the reproof is remember and repent. Repentance is to have a change of mind. Scripturally, we understand that. But repent is not just being sorry that it's been caught, but there is an inward grief and a shame for the spiritual decline. He's telling them, this is something you should grieve over. This should be some shame to you, is that there has been a decline in your love for the Lord. Well, whose fault is it? If, our, if we leave our first love, whose fault is it? Well, we like to blame people for everything. right? Everything that happens in our world is someone else's fault. It's always someone else's fault. If we have left our first love and every, every person at the, in the congregation of the church at Ephesus and every pastor elder of that church who, who didn't even discern the problem, they have to blame themselves. And what do we do when we repent? We confess. We confess that we have done wrong. We judge ourselves. We examine ourselves and we see, have I left my first love? If so, I must repent. So you see, there's kind of this pattern, and I noticed this this afternoon. There's this pattern, and I hope this will help us. There's not an intentional alliteration in this, but I started seeing this pattern. There's a pattern of ours, and they keep, they keep showing up. We see reproofs and we see rebukes. We see the word remember, the idea of recalling, comparing, and considering where you once were. The word repent. But then there's also the command to return. Repent and do the first works. That tells us that's a return back to the very first things. It's to go back to where you took the wrong step. I've heard it more than once over the years. The phrase, and you probably have heard it, but I've heard it more in the spiritual realm. I don't remember where I went wrong. I don't remember what step I took that led me onto the wrong path. I don't remember where I was. I don't remember what it, I don't remember what was happening. And yet, return back to the first works. It is to go back again, 
Go step by step until you find the place where you went wrong. Where did you take the first wrong step? Oftentimes when we don't know where we are, we don't know how we got there, we often just try to find a new way. Right? That's what we do. If we get lost driving somewhere, we don't go back where we got lost. We just try to find a new way from where we already are. It's kind of a crude practical application, but that's how we function. He says, I want you to return. I want you to go back and step by step until you actually find the place where you made the wrong turn, where you took the wrong step. Now that takes some self-examination and it takes some prayer, even like David would pray in the Psalms. Show me if there's any wicked way. Show me where this is. The Spirit puts His finger on this is where you took the wrong step. So what do we do? We return to the first works or else. Now you just kind of take that and if you look at it, it's, it, it's or else I will. It's not or else comma, it's or else I will come unto thee quickly. So they're told to return. Go back to, again, revive and recover that zeal again. That seriousness for God. That love that you once had for the Lord. Pray diligently about it. Think about when you first set out in the Christian life, in the Christian walk. That's the concept here. Now, the church at Ephesus, of course, had been through a number of persecutions, had been through a number of things. The Lord still had words of commendation to give, but then there is this counsel that Christ gives that's a warning, again, here's another R, of a removal. He says, I will come unto thee quickly and will remove thy candlestick. Now, we learned last week that the candlestick is a reference to those seven churches. He said, I will remove that candlestick out of his place, except thou repent. This is a, a, a response of seriousness that's not to be refused. The Lord's response is, it's, it, it, has the, it has the tone of, don't refuse this or else. I will come unto thee and I will remove the candlestick out of its place. Listen, you cannot sin against God and you and I cannot sin against God and expect that God is not going to be displeased with that. Now, we're very good at justifying our sin and we're justifying our rights and our actions. We often say, well, God understands he's not going to be displeased with this. There is no reason or excuse given as to why this happened to the church of Ephesus. He doesn't say, look, I understand it. I know what's happening. He says, if you don't repent of this, if you don't take these steps, I am going to come. And he doesn't say, I might remove the candlestick. He said, I'm going to come and I'm removing that candlestick. See, we just think operating and functioning as a church, whether it displeases God or not, just means that church will always exist. There have been churches throughout history that they have been the direct, I believe this, and we can, we can discuss and debate this, but I believe there are churches throughout history that the candlestick's been removed by God himself. Where he, he has removed that from even being a church. 
Now, there may be a lot of circumstances that go around it, but to think that we can just displease God and God's not going to do anything about it, he's, he's just going to overlook it. Remember, we've already seen that he calls this a sin. God doesn't overlook sin. So why would he overlook the sin of leaving your first love? So he will come in a way, this is a picture of judgment. Notice he says, I will come quickly, which has the meaning of it will be sudden and with surprise. He's not going to announce, I'm coming to remove the candlestick, but it will happen suddenly to unrepentant churches. Unrepentant churches who refuse. What does he take away if he removes the candlestick? Well, there's really nothing left. If you take away the candlestick, you take away the ministers, you take away the congregation, you take away the ordinances. What do, you, what do you have if you remove the gospel from a church? You have absolutely nothing. If you take the gospel away from a church, the church, the church has nothing. So he gave this as a warning. And again, out of his place, except thou repent so we see it very clearly here this principle here of coming quickly and churches not doing what they need to do but just as he did in the beginning of this letter another theological word but this thou hast now he gives them another encouraging reminder of something that they're doing right it's this leaving your first love is sandwiched between good deeds and good works. And he, now he brings up another acknowledgement. He says, this thou hast. Again, this is worthy to be commended. Thou hatest the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Now, I will tell you, my approach to this, the Nicolaitans, I wanted to be very careful about this because there is a lot that is written, that is speculating what the Nicolaitans were guilty of. There was, there's a lot of opinions on what, it, what they were responsible for. But what this encouraging reminder is, is a reminder to act, and they acted in the proper and right manner as to how they should have dealt with this group of people. Even though you've declined in your love for me, which is not good, you have retained a hatred for the doctrine, an evil doctrine that the Nicolaitans stood for. Now, what I did find out about the Nicolaitans, and this is, again, this is just very general, were a, were a very loose group of individuals. They would call themselves a religious sect, I guess that would be accurate to say, that hid behind the name of Christianity. In other words, they used Christianity as their pardon this expression, their storefront. But they hid behind it. It was not really what they were standing for. It wasn't really what they believed in because they had hateful doctrines towards the things of Christ. They were guilty of things that were directed at the people of God, but yet they were doing it with the storefront of being what Christianity is. And it's mentioned here as a way of praise to the church at Ephesus that they had a hatred of those doctrines and those practices. Now, folks, one thing is certain and one thing is always going to be true 
We cannot be indifferent between that which is true and that which is error. We cannot be indifferent. We can't say, I don't, it doesn't really matter to me if that's error and truth, if it's not. No, you can't be indifferent. Truth is truth, and we have to stand for truth, even if the rest of the world is going the other direction. We can't say we're just indifferent. We're just, we're just neutral on this. And we're going to learn a little bit about this on Sunday, uh, even in our, our series in Matthew. When the Lord Jesus himself basically says, he who is not with me is against me. Now, there is no neutrality. There's no, I'm on, I'm on both sides of the fence here. So you, you, can't, you can't put out there in the front, and in, the, in the storefront, that your Christianity, that you're for that at the same time you're filled with error. And he says, listen, uh, this, is, uh, this is right. But you understand that we are living in a, we are living in a day and age that this evangelical compromise is very much alive and well. That if you are not willing to compromise truth and error, you are unloving and you are hateful. That's what you're labeled. You, if you're a Bible believer tonight, and I trust that you are, you are labeled by many quote-unquote evangelical groups as being unloving, prejudiced, bias and just downright hateful people because you will not compromise on this principle of truth and error and the lord is saying you've taken a stand against the nicolaitans which hold this so loosely i don't know where we're going to eventually end up i don't know how far this evangelical compromise um, environment we're in now i don't know how far that's going to be but I think you're going to find fewer and fewer as we go churches that will actually take a, de a definitive stand on truth is going to grow fewer and fewer. Because when, when you begin taking a stand on those things and, you, and you, you hate the things that God hates, you're going to be labeled unloving. When we take the strong stance against things that we take strong stances against, we're going to be labeled as unloving. The fact that we would be 100% against abortion, we are now unloving, hateful people. This is another thing that's come into the, has come into the religious realm. It's, it's, it's going to be a separating issue. But this was not pleasing to the Lord. And our Lord adds this commendation right in the midst of a severe threat of warning which I think even is meant in the intent here is to make what he's saying counsel-wise even more effective. And then verse 7 is really the conclusion. And it begins with a call to attention. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. We don't hear God, the Spirit of God, Christ himself, audibly. I know people are obsessed with the need to feel that they need to hear something audibly. It's an obsession. It's an obsession that's it's raising its head again. It's, it's why there's the explosion of the charismatic speaking in tongues. That's, that's, that's why all this has happened. There's this obsession with, I need to hear something audibly. The call to hear is a call to read 
and understand what's written in the Scriptures because we know that every word from Genesis to Revelation is penned under the inspiration of the Spirit of God. It is God's Word. I don't need any other thing to hear God. But what's written to one church, in these cases, in these seven letters, isn't supposed to be so divided and set apart that we're not supposed to be called to attention on what's being said. Now remember the context. I understand these are seven letters to seven specific Asian churches. But we're not to just ignore them and say, well, that's for the church at Ephesus. That's at the church of Smyrna, Philadelphia, Laodicea. No, this is a call to attention to anyone who has an ear. You and I at this church, we have an ear. So we can't look at this and say, boy, I'm glad, I'm glad that this isn't for us. It's for, it's a, it concerns all churches in every place and in every age in that which is to come. Leaving your first love displeases God. Hating what God hates being zealous for good works, being diligent, not bearing with false apostles, uh, laboring. There's still this stinging accusation that if you leave your first love, if you don't repent of that, I will come quickly and I will remove that candlestick. There is nothing greater that we can do with what God has given us than to listen and hear what the Word of God says. Folks, the very reason why we make the preaching and the teaching of the Word the center of what when we gather together is because it is the very best use of what we need. The hymns that we try to sing are tremendous. The hymns we pick are doctrinally sound. We try to make sure that they all are. But there's nothing better and nothing more profitable than to hear the Word of God preached and proclaimed from any person, any man who stands up at the pulpit of this church and proclaims God's Word. We are called to be attentive, to hear that, to listen to what's being said, because we're hearing the mind of God. Not my mind, not the other preacher's mind, not the mind of God. There will be many, we don't know what this is going to be in the end, there will be thousands who heard the call to attention by God who just ignored it. They just pushed it away. And instead of finding joy in God's Word, they will wish they never heard it and rejected it. It would be better to not hear it at all. Listen to what I'm saying. It would be better to not hear it at all than to hear it and reject it. Because what we are rejecting is the very thing in which God has set as the preeminent. Here is my word. Here is my mind. And in that, he says, He who hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. Now there's some references here that are going back to, all the way back to the garden. But there's really a promise of two things. A promise of great mercy and a promise reward. First, the promise of great mercy is to those who overcome. Folks, let me just tell you that if you're going to live a life that is centered on Christ and your love for Christ, 
you are going to be engaged in a relentless war against sin. Sin never relents. Sin never stops. It doesn't take a break. Your flesh does not stop striving with your spirit to try to convince you to leave your first love. If you've ever seen somebody who's relentless about something, <laughs> if we understood sin, that's what sin is. It doesn't, it doesn't take a break. Even in those moments where you feel this peace of God and you feel like, wow, spiritually, I am on this mountaintop, I want you to know sin is, is still unrelenting. And that sin is not the sin that has to come from the outside. That sin is what comes from that old nature that's still in you, but it might seem like it's dormant. It's not. It's relentless. Living the Christian life is warfare against not only sin, but it's a warfare against the love of the world, the lust of the eyes. It's not enough that we just simply say, okay, we're in the battle, we're in the war. He is saying there is this promise of mercy to those who overcome. Overcome here gives it's the idea of persevering. Now we understand the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints, and I'm not, I'm not disputing that. We know that if you're in Christ, you will persevere till the end, but you understand that in this pursuit, we are never at one moment, at one single time, to yield to sin and say, okay, I'll just let you in for a little while. We're not to yield one inch of ground to our flesh. And yet, let's be honest, we know we all, at times, have yielded some ground. Sometimes we know when we're taking the step off the path, we know the exact moment we started to take the step, we actually knew the step was there and we stepped off anyway. Sin is relentless. We can't yield and listen, this is how serious I am about this. We can't yield one time to compromise truth and error. Not one time. We cannot say one time is okay to yield to this. When the, when the, when the pressure comes on our church, whenever that is, to yield or lose something, yield or this, we can't compromise on that if it's error. You, you can't yield any ground. It's why Paul used terminology even with Timothy about fighting the good fight. Why, why were there such strong battle terms used throughout Scripture? Because it's spiritual warfare, folks. When, when the Lord said, this isn't a, and Paul said, this isn't a battle against flesh and blood. The warfare and victory is promised here. He says, to them that overcome. I will give to eat of the tree of life. The tree of life is a reference to eternal life. It's a tree. It's a reference back to the tree of life, which it was in the midst of the very paradise of God in the Garden of Eden. You will one day have that perfection and you're one day going to have that perfect purity and holiness. All who persevere in Christ will one day have this perfection. And it's not an earthly paradise. 
It's a heavenly paradise. If you look all the way back at the very last chapter, when you're in, in the beginning of a, of, of a book, the very last chapter, Revelation 22, it says, verse 1, He showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding out of the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the midst of the street of it and on either side of the river was there the tree of life, which bare twelve manner of fruits and yielded her fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And there shall be no more curse. There is no more sin. But the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it. And His servants shall serve Him. They shall see His face and His name shall be in their foreheads. And there shall be no night there and they need no candle, neither light of the sun. For the Lord God giveth them light and they shall reign forever and ever. And he said unto me, These sayings are faithful and true. And the Lord God of the holy prophets sent his angel to show unto his servants the things which must shortly be done. Behold, I come quickly. Blessed is he that keepeth the sayings of the prophecies of this book. You see, there is a promised reward. But remember, God does not just allow his churches to leave his people to leave their first love. As he told, told the church at Ephesus, if you have, repent. Remember and repent. Remember, this letter is not just written so we can leave here tonight and we can say we had a great Bible study tonight on the church of Ephesus and have a discussion around our family tables and say, you know, that church of Ephesus really, they really did wrong. I mean, how could they have left their first love? How could that have happened? Folks, the question we have to be asking ourselves is, could it happen to you and I? I'll go on record of saying we shouldn't even as a church just simply assume that we're not guilty of it now. You say, but pastor, there's people coming in and there seems to be growth and there seems to be this. Look, there were a lot of things that the Lord was commending the church at Ephesus for, but he said, I've got this against you. Remember, just doing and just being doesn't mean that we haven't left our first love. Every church that calls Christ their head ought to consider what this letter is written by John on the inspiration of spirit. Tonight it might be for each one of us begging God to give me ears to hear and a heart to obey. Folks, this is not human things. This is, this is the strength that God has to give us. We all have to ask ourselves the question. Hopefully the question is, isn't, have I left my first love? The question is, is my love declining right now? Sometimes you realize the love is on the decline before you get to a place where you've left it. Folks, I realize that's a painful question. It's a painful question because if we ask ourselves that, that very question tonight, one who says, I truly love Christ, I truly love the Savior, it's painful to consider, is it at all possible is it possible at all that I could be guilty of this? 
but it has to be honestly answered too. Folks, when the Spirit, we'll close with this, when the Spirit convicts and the Spirit shows, don't try to fight it. Don't try to say it's not as it seems. It's not that bad. If the Spirit points it out, it's not a mistake in judgment. It's not a, it's not a mistake that, oh, I've got this wrong. The Holy Spirit is God. He's not going to make a mistake. So I hope this letter to the church of Ephesus will challenge us not only as a church, but challenge us as individuals. And then we'll honestly ask ourselves that question. Let's pray together. Father, Lord, we thank you for the love that was set upon us. And Lord, what a humbling truth it is to know that Almighty God set His love upon a people who did not give a single reason to be loved. But yet, in Your mysteries and in Your plan of providence and in sovereignty, You've called out a people unto Yourself. And Father, I realize tonight it's almost unthinkable for us to consider that we could be guilty of leaving our first love. But Father, the Spirit never makes an error. The Spirit is never wrong. And my prayer tonight, Lord, is even not only for myself personally, but for every person under the sound of the, the Word of God tonight that we would examine our own hearts and that the Spirit would convict of even the slightest decline in our degree of love. That we would never settle for just church busyness, religious activity as our gauge as for our love of Christ. Lord, I pray that we would be given discernment through the Spirit in this important matter tonight. But Lord, we also know that this is a point of rejoicing to know and to have that assurance that we are the children of God and that those that are in Christ can never be separated. And we rejoice in that truth. But Lord, may we never misuse grace. May we never misuse your love and your long-suffering toward us. But may these truths be remembered and may they draw us continually closer to our Lord. We love you and we thank you. We thank you for the cross of Christ that accomplished the salvation of your people. We pray and ask all these things in the name of our Savior and for his sake. Amen. Let's conclude with.